or 80, per, 80 to 90% of the time, we don't fulfill those promises. These are, they are just words that come out of our mouth, but we don't do the actions that are necessary in order to fulfill our promises. But you know what? Our Lord God, when He speaks the promises in the Bible, He always fulfill, fulfills them. All the prophecies, all the promises, and everything else that He wrote in the Bible, He fulfilled, and some of them will still be fulfilled in our life and also in our future. And that's why we can trust the Lord. He's trustworthy. He fulfills all his promises. I read of this um, a man. There was this man in a certain church, and they have their prayer meeting on Wednesdays. They don't meet on Zoom, but they meet in a church building just like this. Every Wednesday evening, another member of the church hears him pray the same words. He would say, Lord, please clean the cobwebs out of my life. Clean the cobwebs out of my life. So weeks, months, and years to come, this man has been praying this kind of prayer. But this another brother in Christ never saw any change in the life of the person. He never acted on his own prayers to the Lord. He would ask the Lord, Lord, please clean my life. But he was not doing anything. There's no change happening in his life. So one day, this brother of his in the Lord said, so this person who's praying said, Lord, clean the covers of my, of my life. And then the other person said, and Lord, while you're at it, please kill the spider also. Not only the cobwebs, not only clean the cobwebs. Sometimes that's a prob the problem with all of us. We want us to, to be changed by the Lord, but we don't do our part. We have a responsibility. We need to change our attitudes. We need to change the, the way we respond to circumstances in our life. Back in chapter 9 of Nehemiah last week, I talked about the prayer of the people of Israel. They recognized the greatness of God. They acknowledged the grace of God. They acknowledged the goodness of God. And in their prayer, they said, Lord, we have done foolishly in your sight. We have done so many wicked things. Even though you sent so many prophets and good teachers to all of us so that we will turn away from our sins, we never turn away from our sins. Perhaps for some time we ca came back to you, but after some time we always go back to idolatry. But the end of chapter 9 and also the start of verse chapter 10, especially the first 27 verses, the people of Israel, together with the leaders, including Nehemiah and Ezra, the scribe, the Bible teacher, made a covenant with the Lord. And during that time, when they make covenants, they have a big scroll, a long scroll, and all of them will sign, especially the leaders of their own families. They will sign that covenant. And what's in that covenant? We will see what's in the covenant, but essentially they were, they were saying, God, we're going to be true and faithful to you. So they essentially make a promise to the Lord. And in that, in that time, they call it like a vow, an oath, an oath of covenant to the Lord, saying to the Lord, Lord, we have signed our names into this scroll, and this, the, the test, 
the testimony that we are going to fulfill and make uh, through all our promises to you because you are our God. Nowadays, we don't make vows or oaths because as I've said a while ago, when we try to make promises, even not only to our family or even to our church family, but especially to our God, most of the time, we do not fulfill them. Lord, I promise this coming week, I'm going to read my Bible one chapter a day. And then next Sunday comes, I ask you, how's your promise to the Lord? Oh, pastor, I'm going to do that again next week. I'll try again next week. It's not good enough to try, my brethren. When we tell God, I'm going to read your word because your word changes me, it changes my life, do it. Don't just say it. You need to do it. We don't want to be like the Pharisees. The Pharisees will always say good things, good principles from the word of God, but they never intended to follow through. That's why it's hard to make promises to the Lord. And for us, rather than make promises, we need to depend upon the promises of God instead. Because if he says that the word of God is alive, it's quick and it's active, it's powerful, it changes your life, then we can be trusting God that when we read his word, when we apply his word into our life, then we will be changed. It's better not to make promises rather than make promises and not fulfill them. One preacher said, the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. Every day that we wake up, not only in the Sunday morning, but Monday, Tuesday, until next Sunday, it's always a new lease in life, a new opportunity for us to serve our Lord God. In Psalm 37, verses 23 to 24, it says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. And that's why we don't make promises to the Lord as much possible. Because we just let him change our life. Let him fulfill his promises to all of us. But of course, he wants us to be responsible with what he has given us. Because remember, we are not owners of everything that we have right now, we are managers, we're stewards. We supervise the things that he gives us, our properties, our family, even the Bible that we read, it's not our own, it's from the Lord. But he wants us to be good stewards of what he has given us. When people make promises, just like the people of Israel in chapter nine, how do we know that they are really sincere? So we know that People are sincere in their promises if they follow through, if they do what they promise to do for the Lord or for other people. So the question for all of us is, are the, our promises to the Lord sincere? And how do we know if we are following up or following through with what we have promised to the Lord? So let us open first with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we know that the flowers fade, the grass withers, but the word of a God shall stand forever. We know that this word that we have right now in our hands or either in our phones, digitally, O oh Lord, they are from you. 
they are authored by the Holy Spirit as He moved the minds of the authors, the human authors. I pray, Lord, that as you move those authors, Lord, you will move our hearts also. You will help us, Lord, not really to make promises, but to follow through with what you have commanded us, O Lord, to do. To study your word, to apply it, and to let it change our life. Help our Lord, help us, Lord, not to say words, but also to follow through with actions, O Lord. Because the Bible says, if our faith is really genuine and sincere, then actions will follow as a result. So help us, Lord, just like the people of Israel in this chapter of Nehemiah, Lord, as they make this covenant to the Lord, they follow through with three important and essential elements that testify that they are sincere to their promises to the Lord. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen. So the first thing to know if our promises to the Lord are sincere, if we are following through, is first, if we submit to the word of God. If we submit to the word of God. So here in verses 1 to 27, we see a bunch of names again. And the very first person who wrote his signature on that scroll was, of all people, the leader of Israel, Nehemiah. So take note here in verse 1. Those that sealed or signed their names were Nehemiah the Tirshata. Tirshata means governor. So he was the leader of Israel, the civilian leader. He was the first one who wrote. And together with him were his um, brethren, who were, and also the priests. So the priests were in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Seraiah, Azariah, Jeremiah. Verse 3, Pashur, Amariah, Malkijah. Verse 4, Hatash, Shebaniah, Malak. Verse 5, Harim, Meremoth, Obadiah. 6, Daniel, Ginnethon, Baruch. And then 7, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijamin. Verse 8, Maziah, Bilgal, Shemaiah. These were the priests. So after the civilian leader, the priest, the spiritual leaders also signed. And it's very important because leaders should lead by example. How can people follow them if they're not the ones starting the sealing or the signing of the covenant to the Lord? And in this way, they are submitting to the word of God. The word submit means to yield, to surrender, to understand that the word of God holds the authority in their life and also in our life. They knew from Nehemiah chapter 9 that they need to turn away from their sins, from their idolatry. And that's what they're telling the Lord God when they signed the covenant. We will obey your word. We will stick to what you said to us that we should not bow down to idols. Some of us, or perhaps many of us, have been in that religion in the past which tell us to bow down to images. And we call them idols. And that past religion that we have tells us that the Ten Commandments are such and such from one to ten, but they miss one important commandment that they always uh, ignore, especially in their spiritual leaders' teaching 
their congregation. And you know what is that most important commandment that they miss or ignore? Thou shalt not bow down to images or thou shalt not make graven images, whether in heaven or in earth. Idols, statues, images that they bow down to when they have their so-called services. And the Bible says, God is a jealous God. He doesn't want his people to bow down to worship those idols, those images, those statues. But for you who are Christians right now, you might say, well, I don't bow down to images or statues. But don't you spend so much time in your technology, in your digital technology? You spend so much time with so many other things in your life, like binging on uh, watching televisions, uh, television shows or movies and so on, and you don't have much time to spend with the Lord? That's also idolatry. You might think idolatry is just the image or the statues. It's also anything or anyone that you put first in your heart. And how do we know what are the things or people that we put first in our heart? If we spend so much time on those things and people. If you spend so much time in watching movies and television shows. If you spend so much time on your phones. If you spend so much time on any other thing rather than God. Then that is your idol. That's your idol. And we are also committing a great sin before the Lord. Just like the Israelites. So we need to submit to the word of God. God wants us to worship him and him alone. Now in verse 29, same chapter, we see that when they submit to the word of God, it says here in verse 9, they cling to their brethren. They mean, it means they cling. They cling to their brethren. They join. They connected. And for us, modern day Christians, that's about fellowship. They want to have fellowship with their brethren. The same with all of us. We need to ask ourselves, who is our BFF, our best friend forever? If your best friend forever is a non-believer, and this best friend forever is the one that you spend time most, what does that tell you about your spirituality, especially if you're a Christian? That means you spend so much time with the world. You are being influenced by the world. I'm not saying that you isolate yourself from that unbelieving friend. That's not what I mean to say. What I mean to say is that when you have fellowship, when you have a time of companionship, when you have a time of discussion, which one do you spend time more, most? Is it with the unbeliever or with the believers? Because there are times that we, when we as Christians, we want to spend more time with our recreation, with our unbelieving friends, rather than being in the church on a Sunday morning. Sometimes we consider attending church services on Sunday as something that's optional. I can go on Sunday morning, even if, not, I'm, not feeling, if I'm feeling good, I'm okay, no other appointments. I just want to stay home. That's not submitting to the word of God. And that's also your idol. idol if you're not attending church services. The Lord God wants us to submit to his word. And later on, we will see 
that the people of Israel, they want to honor the Sabbath day. They claim to their brethren, fellowship is so important to them. And that's why not only Sunday morning, even on Wednesday night, even on Zoom, we gather together for prayer time and Bible study. Because we need encouragement from one another. How much time do you spend in your workplace? At least 40 hours. For some of you, probably more than 40 hours if you're working overtime. And in the workplace, do you have many Christians that you get together with? Most likely, not many people who are Christians. And all throughout the week, from Monday to Friday, or sometimes until Saturday, your minds are always influenced by these people's attitude and behavior. Just imagine, you work in a workplace wherein there are so many unbelievers, and you know, when unbelievers get together, especially during the break time, what do they talk about? the Lord Jesus Christ? Do they talk about church? Do they talk about the Bible? They talk about other people. Right? Did you know that such and such had this problem? Or this person messed up in our workplace? That's what they talk about. And if from Monday to Saturday, you've been hearing, even though you're not participating in the gossip, you've been hearing all those things around you. Then what happens on Sunday? You bring that kind of attitude. When you come on Sunday morning, you gossip around also with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's not good. The Bible says, avoid malicious talks, idle talks, gossipings, because that will not build up God's people. Remember, we are here not only to learn from the word of God, but also to build up one another. How can we encourage one another if we're just gossiping around? So they claim they're their brethren. They have fellowship, not only with the brethren, but with the nobles, verse 29. And then they said into, into a curse, into an oath, to walk in God's way, God's law, which was given by Moses, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord. Is this our desire right now when we go to church? To walk in the way of the Lord and to obey His word. There are so many things that we can do in order to obey the word of God. And it's all in the Bible. And the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, His commandments are not grievous or burdensome. We might think that the word of God and the commandments of God are so heavy upon us. No, it's not really hard to obey the word of God. It's so easy as long as we have that desire to follow his will in our life. So that's the first thing that we, know, we need to know. If we submit to the word of God, then we know that we are making a sincere promise to the Lord. Secondly, we know that we are sincere in making our promises if we separate from the world. Verse 28 says, And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the seniors, the Nethinims, so these are all people serving in the temple. These are like the, the church staff nowadays. Okay? The porters are the ushers or the greeters. The singers are the worship team or the choir. The Nethinims, they are the servants in the temple. 
So all of them, they promised to separate themselves from the people of the land. That means the Gentiles and the idol worshippers unto the law of God. So this is the point. When, we, when I talk about the word separate, it doesn't mean to isolate yourself. Because it's impossible for us to get away from the unbelieving people. Because if we want to do that, then we, can, we need to go up to the highest mountains in the world and then live by ourselves and build our own congregation there and not have any contact with other people. But the Bible says we need to not, we need to be separate, means we should not be influenced by those people who are unbelievers. He wants us to be separated unto the law. So when you separate yourself, you separate from yourself from the world, but you separate yourself unto the word of God. So when you separate, you have two things to think about. You get away from things that will influence you for evil things, but go into the thing that will influence you to do what is good in your life. So separate from the world, but separate to the word of God. And again, that means obedience and submission to the word of God. So they wanted to walk in the law of God and to observe and do all the commandments. Separation is just simply total devotion, being passionate. Jesus Christ said to this scribe who asked him, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is, love your neighbor as thyself. That's what it means by separating from the world and separating unto the word of God. Commitment to God and his word. There were two special areas of concern that were mentioned here in terms of separation. So in verse 30, he said, that we would not give our daughters unto the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. So what does that mean? He's talking about marriage. In marriage, we will not allow our sons to have marriage with the daughters of the Canaanites or the Gentiles, and our daughters will not have any marriage with the sons of these Gentile people. It's not just about the difference in the race. It's about their beliefs. Remember, the Gentile people during the time of the people of Israel, they're idol worshippers. Nowadays, we don't make separation between Filipino and Chinese or American and Filipino, American and Chinese. Because the important thing in the Bible right now, especially in our times, is two people getting married should be equally yoked. That means they are both believers in Christ and serving him faithfully in their church. Because you know the word yoke, and that's why the Apostle Paul uses the word yoke when he talks about relationships, especially in terms of marriage. Because the yoke is the instrument or the tool that you use uh, in farming during that time. And that yoke partners one animal with another So when he said, do not be unequally yoked, the first, you are the person with that uh, one portion, the yoke, your partner in farming should be 
have to be in the same yoke or same uh, relationship, same spiritual um, belief. So, what would happen if you are unequally yoked? For example, there's a cow and another one will be a horse. They will not be going together because they will be going separate ways. And if they go separate ways, what happens if they go separate ways? They will not achieve the goal of farming. The same with Christians. If you, especially if you're single right now, you get married with an unbeliever, you will go this narrow, straight path, the path of the Lord Jesus Christ, but your spouse will go the other way. And what happens if your spouse goes the other way and you go the straight and narrow way of the Lord Jesus Christ? You will not achieve the same goal. And that's the point of the Bible teaching us not to be unequally yoked. Oh, but just a word of caution. If you are already married with that unbelieving spouse, the Bible says, do not divorce that person, of course. Just pray for that person that sooner this, your spouse, will come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord, as his Lord and Savior. But before we get, get married, you need to understand that your relationship should always be with another Christian. And this applies also sometimes to major business transactions, especially if you would want to uh, establish a, a big a business and you are like the co-owners, you are the Christian co-owner and your friend is, who is an unbeliever is a co-owner, that's a big problem also. Because your values, your principles will differ in some ways. And that's why although it may not completely be you may, you may not be completely influenced by your partner in the business, but it could be an influence upon you also. And that could destroy your testimony and witness as a Christian. But most importantly, marriage is so important in the Bible. According to separation, we need, we need to be always connected with people who are believers, especially in terms of marriage. Another aspect that he talks about here is about the Sabbath. So verse 31 says, If the people of the land bring ware, like um, food or uh, equipments or anything, any product, Sabbath day, to sell, we would not buy it of them on the, or on the holy day, and that we would leave the seventh year and the extension of every debt. So for the Jewish people, Sabbath day is a very religious event that they want to honor because they were given that regulation to honor the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath day for the Jewish people, of course, are Saturday. That's the Sabbath day. That's why uh, there's one Jewish synagogue here in Richmond. I think it's on Francis, somewhere on that area. You can see that on fri from Friday evening until Saturday evening, you cannot see them get out of their homes. Uh, there's this bakery uh, in, on Gander City and Blundell. They, um, they offer um, kosher food, kosher breads. And the I don't know if the owner is Jewish, but the previous owner was Jewish. And he, this new owner, he wants to honor also the wishes of the previous owner who was Jewish. So Friday evening to Saturday evening, 
they're not open. The bakery is not open. So for th- it's really a big deal for them to honor the Sabbath day because they want to just rest on their homes and worship the Lord God with their family. They don't want to do any kind of work, actually. Any kind of, even simple work in their homes. They are not allowed to do that. But the question is for all of us modern-day Christians, are we supposed to recognize and obey the Sabbath laws or the Sabbath principle? Of course not. We are not Jewish people. We are Gentiles. The day that we honor is the Sunday. And you know why we honor Sunday? Because we recognize the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ that took place on a Sunday. That's why the first day of the week, which is Sunday, we are here to congregate and to worship the Lord and to honor Him. But the Bible also tells us back in Genesis chapter 2 that the Lord God rested on the seventh day, which is actually the Sabbath day again. But we are not given the command to honor the Sabbath day. But the Bible says at least we need to have one day of rest. One day of rest. And in that one day of rest, it's not a day of recreation or doing whatever you want. On that day of rest, you are instructed to honor the Lord. Spend time with the Lord. Take some break from the past few days that you are so busy being influenced by the world. So our Sabbath, which is not really commanded to all of us, but we are supposed to have at least one day of rest. It could be a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or even a Saturday. Doesn't really matter, but have a day of rest. Not only to rejuvenate and to refresh yourselves, but especially to spend time with the Lord. And that's what God wants us to do. It's not for Him, but for us. He rested on the seventh day because, not because He's tired, He never gets tired. But he wants to show us an example that we need to take some rest also from our labors, especially from our work. And the people of Israel said, on the Sabbath day, we will not entertain any kind of product. If there is some barter trade happening, we will stop them from doing that. We will remain in the temple, we will remain in our homes and worship the Lord God. Thirdly, we also, and this is one of the most important things, and this is very much applicable to all of us. Verses 32 to 39. We know that our promises to the Lord are sincere if we support the house of the Lord. We support the house of the Lord. So how do we support the house of the Lord? For the, for the Jewish people, back in verses 32 to 33, they give temple tax. So 32, also we made ordinances for us, to charge ourselves yearly with the third part of a shekel for the service of the house of God. Verse 33, for the showbread, for the continual meat offering, and for the continual burnt offering of the Sabbaths, of the new moons, for the set feast, and for the holy things, and for the sin offerings to make an atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of God. So no one else support the work of God in the temple of Jerusalem. It's God's people supporting. One time, um, we had a visitor here from another religion, a Filipino lady, and um, she cannot um, um, 
stop herself from asking me this question. Pastor, how do you get the money for your church? Because, you know, in, 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 in her religion, people donate money, right? And also, um, from the Vatican City, they get um, funds for that local church in that religion. So she, she said, how do you get support with your paying for this rent, for everything that you need to pay for, the expenses? It's from the family, from the church family. Really? How can you do that? How is it possible? Just a few of you supporting this building, supporting the ministry of this church? That's what the Jewish people were doing. They do not depend on outside help. But they depend on everybody. Even though there's only a few of them or a few, only a few of us, we support ourselves because God provides for us. And we know that God is going to provide for us continually through his people. We don't need to seek other people's help or to seek funding from other groups in order to sustain the ministry of this church. That's what they're doing. That's why they give a third part of a shekel in order to support the work of God. Because during that time, they need to support who? The Levites, the priest, the high priest, and all the other stuff. They don't work. They work full-time in the temple. And those people, ordinary people, who are not Levites or priests, they're the ones supporting the staff in the temple of God. In verse 34, they also support by giving wood offering. Verse 34 says, We cast the lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God after the houses of our fathers at times appointed year by year to burn upon the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. Wood offering is so important for them to sacrifice their animals. We don't sacrifice animals right now, so this does not apply to us. We don't need to bring wood offering right here unless we have a fireplace here and uh, burn that uh, wood to make this warmer. But we have our, our heater here in order to warm, up, uh, warm us in the cold seasons uh, in our city. So we don't need the wood offering. But now here in verse 35 to 37, we see the first fruits. They support the house by bringing the first fruits. Verse 35, to bring the first fruits of our ground, okay, that means the products from their, uh, from their crops, from their farming, the first fruits of all the fruit of all trees, year by year, unto the house of the Lord. So everything that they earn, not necessarily the money, but especially the fruits that they got from their farming, they offer it to the Lord. And take note, first fruits, the best part. You know, the first fruits will be the best part of the crops, right? They don't give the leftovers. Sometimes we Christians, we give God the leftovers rather than the best and the first. What is, what is the importance of giving him the first rather than the, the leftover? He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need anything from us. He can exist by himself because he is the Yahweh God. He doesn't need people, but because he is a God who loves, he wants people to take part in his plans and purposes for this world. And when we give first to the Lord, everything that we get, 
we give him the first, not the leftovers. We tell him, God, you are first in my life. Remember Matthew 6.33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Seek ye first. He did not say, seek first all the other things, and then God second or third or fourth. He said, seek God first. And that's what they're doing here. Everything that they harvest, they give to the Lord the first and the best parts. Not only that, in verse 36, also the firstborn of our sons, the firstborn children, especially the, the sons, they offer them to the Lord. Not to burn them in sacrifice, but to offer them to the Lord for service, for ministry perhaps. Not only the sons, but the cattle. And the first firstlings of our herds and of our flocks to bring to the house of our God and to the priests that minister in the house of our God. And then verse 37, that we should bring the first fruits of our dough and our offerings and the fruit of all manner of trees, of wine, of oil, unto the priest, to the chambers of the house of our God. Because all these things are very important for the priest to, to be able to sacrifice in the altar, in the temple of Jerusalem. So now in 37, 39, we see the tithe. Okay? And you know, when preachers start talking about the word tithe, people are becoming jittery, shaking. Oh no, this now, perhaps the pastor is seeking for, for more money for his own, and so on and so forth. But the Bible tells us that these tithes are not from the pastor. If this is not the teachings of the spiritual leaders, this is the teaching from the word of God. So, the last part of verse 27 says, we're going to bring also the tithes of our ground unto the Levites. Okay? Tithes of our ground, that means the products of their farming, they're going, ten, going to give 10%. The word tithe means 10% to the house of their God, to the Levites. That the same Levites might have the tithes in all the cities of our tillage. Because remember, as I said, the Levites don't work. They don't farm, they don't do anything else, but they serve in the temple of God. So, and, but they have families. The Levites are not single people. Mostly they have families that they need to support. So the other people who are farming, they are the ones supporting the Levites and the priests. In verse 38, the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites take tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes unto the house of our God, to the chambers, into the treasure house. So in essence, not only the Levites and the priests, but also the high priests will be supported through these first fruits of God's people. The question for all of us is this right now. Are we commanded in the Bible to tithe? The word tithe is only mentioned in the Old Testament, and they are mostly written for the Jewish people. In the New Testament, there's no command for all of us to tithe. But you know what is in the Bible? The Bible tells us in the New Testament to give generously. And you know, giving generously is more than 10%. And that's why the principle for all of us modern-day Christians, is to give generously as your heart purposes. 
Your heart to be to, needs to be willing when you give to the Lord. Perhaps if you are a young believer, you give only 10%, just like a baby step. If you have 1,000 for this week, you give at least 100. But as God continues to prosper you, and your heart is more glad and rejoicing because you give, then you give more and more and more. And you know what? When you do that, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, the Lord says, if you give to me, you are testing me. You are trying me. You are allowing me to give you an opportunity to be more prosperous. Perhaps not in the financial means, but prosperous perhaps spiritually. But God will surely bless you when you give him. He doesn't need all our givings. But what he's after is our attitude. The attitude of being generous. Because no one can be compared to God. God is the most generous person or being in the whole world. And how do we know that? He gave his only begotten son to die on the cross for our sins. Can you give up your only begotten son for somebody else? Of course not. We will not do that. It's so hard to do that. But God did that to all of us so that we can be forgiven of all our sins. So his generos generosity is way more than our generosity. He wants us to give not only for the ministry but to show to him that we make him first in our life. In the book of Haggai, uh, chapter 1, the people of God, when they came back to Jerusalem after the 70 years of Babylonian captivity, were so busy uh, beautifying their houses. Oh, I'm going to give, uh, have a good design in my house. I'm going to have lots of properties and so on. But on the other hand, they forgot about the temple. The temple is so messed up, full of garbage because of the destruction many, many years before that. They did not care about the spiritual, the ministry that God wanted them to do for him. They took care of their material needs first rather than God himself. And that's not good in the eyes of God. He wants us to support his house, his temple, his ministry. Because remember, the point that we are supporting the ministry is to get more people into God's kingdom. That's our purpose. To go therefore and teach all nations. Bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ that they can only be saved. And if you are here today, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is the right opportunity right now to turn away from your sin. Because you are all sinners. All of us are sinners. And we cannot save ourselves from our sins. We cannot forgive ourselves from our sins. Only Jesus Christ can forgive you of all your sins. And if you die today, you are still in your sin, you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are going to hell. And we don't want you to go to hell. We want you to go to heaven together with all of us. And the only way that you can go to heaven is to turn to Jesus Christ. Pray to him and tell him, Lord Jesus Christ, I am a sinner. I need you to forgive my sins. 
I need you to bring me to heaven. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. That's what he wants you to do right now. No more delay. Don't neglect this teaching that you have learned right now, this morning. Pay attention. Think about this because your life is at stake. You know what's happening in the world right now? Everything, the flooding, the earthquake, the crime, the immorality, is now global. Jesus Christ might be coming back soon. If you want to be with him forever and ever, then you need to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ right here, right now. And for us modern-day believers, God wants us to have a three-point application. So first, we need to be public and open in our allegiance to the Lord, in our commitment to the church. Don't just be private. Don't be like a secret agent. Don't be a secret Christian. Let other people know that you are a Christian. When they ask you, how come you are different from us? Tell them, because Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and he wants me to follow his example. He wants me to have the same attitude and behavior just like he was on this earth more than, th uh, more than 2,000 years ago. Be public in your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, when you teach the word of God, when God gives you opportunity to facilitate or teach other people, challenge them also to obey the word of God. It's not enough to just gain information and knowledge about the Bible, about Jesus Christ. You need to have a great connection between our head and our heart. There needs to be an obedience. Lastly, look over your finances and evaluate where your heart and money belong. For where your heart is, there will you be your treasure. Okay? Your heart will always follow the treasure that you value. The most important thing in your life, that's where your heart will follow. If Jesus Christ is the most important, if Jesus Christ is the most important in your life, then you will follow him also. That's very important. And for the next uh, two weeks, I want to make a, a very practical application to all of us about the first principle. Okay, there are so many studies right now that says that the first hour of the day is an optimal time for us to learn and to retain information. And I hope that's true for many of us. And when we retain information during the first hour of the day, we are more alert and we are more focused. Because after a good night's rest, of course, you are well rested. Well rested. So you retain more information the first hour of the day. So if you wake up at 6 o'clock, 6 to 7 will be the first hour of your day. What do we need to do in order that to, ha for ha to have that first hour? Let go of your plans. Because the first hour of your morning belongs to the Lord. Tackle the day's work that he charges you with and he will give you the power to accomplish it. Make it a practice starting tomorrow, September 25, until October 8, which is Thanksgiving Sunday, to follow this principle, the first hour of the day. Every first hour, the, the moment that you wake up, dedicate it to the Lord. You pray, you sing praises to the Lord, you read the Bible, study it in depth, 
and just spend so much time with the Lord in that one hour. If you need to go to work after that, then you might need to wake up earlier. And this is what I call the first principle, September 25 to October 8. So these are the steps that we need to do. In order to give God the five first steps, give God the first hour, give God the first day of the week, which is Sunday, give God the first portion of your pay or income, everything that you have, give the first portion, not the leftover. What I'm saying is this, if you get, for example, 1000 the next week, you give the $100 right away to the Lord. You set it apart for the Lord and not the other way around because people would say, oh, okay, I'll spend the 900 right away and then the leftover, which is 100, I'll give it to the Lord. If it's, isn't it the same thing? Yes, same thing mathematically, but you're not telling God that he is first in your life. He is first in your life. So if he really is your first in your life, then you give him the first of everything. Give him also the first consideration in every decision. When you need to make a decision, whether small or big, where do you go to? Do you go to your counselor? Or do you go to your pastor first? Or do you go to the Lord God himself first? You go to him first. However, that decision, whether big or small, go to the Lord Jesus Christ right away. And lastly, give God the first place in your heart. Because if he doesn't have the first place in your heart, then you have a big idol. And he hates that. He hates that. So let us practice this first principle starting tomorrow until October 8th. You may be wanting to fast, but I'm not obliging you to fast, but dedicate the first hour, the first day, the first portion, the first consideration, and the first place in your heart to the Lord God always. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us so many promises that we can hang on to because you are a trustworthy God. We are not trustworthy in ourselves, O oh Lord. Uh, but you know, Lord, that as we depend on your promises, we are able to give you the first place in our, in our heart the first hour of our day, the first day of the week, the first portion of any income that we have, as well as the first consideration in every decision that we make, O oh Lord. Lord, help us, Lord, to follow through with this promise to make you always first in our life. In whatever aspect of our life, help us, Lord, to seek you first and your kingdom. And we know that everything that we need, you will provide in your own way and in your own timing. Help us, Lord, to completely dedicate and renew our life, O oh Lord. That's the only way that we can be revived individually and also corporately as a church. So, Lord, we acknowledge that you're going to help us starting tomorrow until Thanksgiving Sunday, October 8th, to practice the first principle in our life. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. Let us...